0: We're in the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. We hope you're there with us in the Bible. And as we continue reading through the Gospel of Luke on Sunday mornings, the popularity of Jesus amongst the populace is growing exponentially. People are coming from all over to hear him speak, to witness the miracles at his hand, and some hoping that the miracle will heal them of the disease or the unclean spirit that oppresses them. Others have come to scrutinize and to judge his teaching. For the religious leaders at this time are already now beginning to track the ministry of Jesus. They already have decided and discussed amongst themselves how they might bring the ministry of Jesus to, to a dismise. They are looking to cease this movement that they feel is a threat to everything that they hold dear, from their traditions to the power in which they hold over the people. And as Jesus continues his ministry, as he's growing closer and closer to that day that he'll enter Jerusalem, seven days before his crucifixion, he is taking every opportunity to minister to the people that he can have and has been afforded. And in Luke chapter 6, we continue now. After ministering day in and day out, Jesus often retreated to personal private times with him and the Father in prayer. It was at these times that he just knelt at the feet of the Father to re-energize and to continue to, in the will, the perfect will that the Father had for him. And in this particular case, we pick it up in verse 12 of chapter 6. And in these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon who is called the Zealot and Judas the son of James and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Jesus now knows as his ministry is slowly coming to an end that he now needs to a point twelve that will succeed him in continuing the ministry in which he started here on this earth. And he chose from amongst the disciples twelve to be apostles. The word disciple is a derivative of the word discipline. It was the manner in which an individual learned in that culture. They would follow the individual, listening to the teachings of that individual, watching the example of that individual, and then mimicking it the same thing in their lives. That's the manner in which they learned and were taught in that culture. Jesus now is taking from the entire group of disciples 12 that he has now named apostles that he is sending out with a special message as a special envoy with special authority to continue on the ministry that he has begun and will continue until he returns a second time. The office of apostle is a specific office within the church. It is an office that I believe is no longer a position in the church today because apostles in this case, in this definition, were directly appointed by Jesus. In fact, even when the position of Judas was left empty after his suicide after he betrayed the Lord. Peter made it clear that the one that they chose to fulfill that position must have been with Jesus from the time of John the Baptist to the time of the crucifixion and resurrection. There's of course much debate if the twelfth was the one that they picked at that time, Matthias, or was it Paul the Apostle? I'll leave it to you as Bible scholars to make that determination. I have my opinion, And I'm sure you have your insights on that also. And so as Paul wrote in Ephesians that God has called some to be the apostles, it's in the singular tense in the Greek, that office now, because Jesus is no longer personally appointing apostles to the body of Christ, I don't believe functions in the same way today as it did then with the apostolic authority that they had. Obviously, it was by their hands that much of the New Testament would be written. It was by their hands that miracles were wrought. It was by them that the doctrines of Christ were expounded upon in the new and established church. Unique office fulfillments. Now, that being said, today, the term apostle can also mean one who is sent out to plant a church. And I guess in that case, lowercase a, Maybe there is still some validity, but again, many of the apostles that I hear of today are self-appointed, with self-appointed authority. And often they take the liberty in this self-appointed authority to change the word of God, and that can never be. And so Jesus now, commissioning the twelve out of the entire body of the disciples, and of course, interesting men that they are, In fact, I agree with one who stated that their uh, compilation of all of them together truly fulfills the words of Paul when Paul wrote, he said, "...for consider your calling, brothers, that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise." God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. One historian actually qualified the academic uh, accomplishments of the disciple. Matthew had excelled in many areas but the most competent educated qualified disciple of them all was Judas and it didn't work out very well for him did it that is Judas Iscariot but God chose these men because he knew that through them he would be ultimately glorified when the disciples I should say the apostles stood before the uh, religious leaders in acts of course they were determined to be untrained and uneducated men but they had been with Jesus I believe that God can use anybody for any purpose that he sees fit according to his word. I believe that God can raise up a man who uh, is simply available and willing to do great and awesome things for the body of Christ and for the kingdom of God. I believe God uses the ordinary people of the world to do extraordinary things for once again he then receives all the glory for what happens in and through their lives because they know that it's not them and it's all about him. So after selecting these 12 we pick it up again in verse 17 and he came down with them that is the apostles that's the way we have it in the grammar of the Greek and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples, those are the ones that chose to follow him, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, whom came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with, unclean, uh, with the unclean spirits were cured. And the word trouble there means oppressed or harassed by And in verse 19, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Luke gives his recipient, Theophilus, this information to truly frame the context of what is coming next. What's coming next is Luke's adaptation of the the Sermon of the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. Luke, unlike Matthew, is writing to a Gentile audience. He wants the audience that he is writing to to understand the backdrop of the teaching in which Jesus is about to proceed into. It is the plethora of people, it's the different type of people that are surrounding him listening to this message that helps us identify and to interpret what he means by what he says. He's speaking to a Jewish crowd. He's in Israel. He is speaking to a Jewish crowd that, of course, grew up under the Mosaic law. And there was an aspect of the Mosaic law that was uh, absolutely prevalent in all the thinking of Jewish people at that time. In fact, once you see this, you can see this throughout the gospel as Jesus addresses this prevalent thought within the Jewish mindset. God made it clear in Deuteronomy chapters 28 and 29 that if Israel were to be obedient to what God had established, they would be blessed in certain ways. If they were to be disobedient to God, they would be cursed in certain ways. And you have that in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. It was a national aspect It was something that God wrote and told the people of Israel that as a nation you would be held accountable in this manner, in this way. However though, through the writings of the rabbis we discover that in the period of 400 years between Malachi and Matthew what was set out to be a national standard became an individualized standard where people began to appropriate it upon themselves. Therefore, those who were rich in the society must be blessed of God. They must be walking in favor with God, and as a result, they are rich in light of the favor that God has shown them. They must be obedient and living in obedience to God. It became so bad that their riches, that their riches actually dismissed their sins well, I'm as wealthy as I am and I'm continuing in the life that I am so God must condone this lifestyle which in often many cases was contrary to the word of God. But they felt that they were justified before God. And on the other side of the coin you had the poor. And it was determined by that society that the poor, the hungry, those who are weeping, those who are in need, those who had afflictions well, they in some way, either their fathers or their, uh, one of their ancestors of some sort may have sinned at some time and now they're reaping the consequences thereof or they themselves had disobeyed God in some way and now are reaping the consequences thereof and so society looked at people through that mindset rich must be blessed of God poor must be cursed of God they must have done something wrong They must have disobeyed God in some way. You really see this when it comes to the rich young ruler. And many have been fascinated by the manner that the dialogue goes between the rich young ruler and Jesus because the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, you know, and he takes him through the Ten Commandments, keep these commandments and so forth, and you will inherit eternal life. And the rich young ruler says, well, I've done that from the very beginning. I've always been like that. Well, Jesus said, then go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And the rich young ruler, of course, couldn't do that. He wasn't willing to give up his inheritance. It was more than just an inheritance. It was more than just something that was bequeathed to him by his father. It was his whole identity for him to give up his wealth, he knew that in that culture, him giving his wealth away would have indicated and becoming poor and without nothing would indicate to the people that maybe he's no longer in favor with God. That was a huge part of his thinking. Why do I believe that? Because of what the disciples say next. They're like, well, if he can't be saved, then who can? He's obviously in favor with you, Jesus. That's what they were saying. They were saying, look at him! his wealth and his, he's blessed and he's good looking and, and so on and so forth. He's got it all. If he can't be saved, then who can? They're looking at each other like, we're, we're done. We're goners. And then Jesus said to them, that with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. You see this mindset throughout the entire Gospels. And when you come to the Beatitudes supremely blessed, Jesus turns this on a dime in a brilliant, magnificent way. And as we go through, we are looking at it from the writings of Luke, taking into consideration the Gentile audience, specifically Theophilus, in whom he is writing this letter to, And as we look at these Beatitudes together, let us keep in mind the mindset that we just discussed. For he uses a word four times, blessed. I'm often asked, what does the word blessed mean? You really need the context of the chapter to truly understand what that means. In its base form here in our text, it is the word happy that is correct, but the happiness is not based on personal circumstances in the temporal moment, but on circumstances that are still yet to come. This is a huge dynamic of this equation. Now, when you talked about blessedness in the Jewish culture, you would invoke thinkings of long life, wealth, a large and healthy family, a full barn defeated enemies. This was the idea of blessed in the Jewish mind. If you look at that definition and you can take it back to Deuteronomy 28 and 29, you see where they get the terms from. But now Jesus begins to teach the people that are surrounding him. We have the apostles in attendance. We have disciples, those who have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. And we have a great multitude of people that have come from every area around to hear the words and to see and to experience the ministry of Jesus Christ. And in that context, with that mindset in mind, let us now begin in verse 20. And he lifted his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, first of all, let us remember the audience. Undoubtedly many of the multitude and maybe even the disciples were poor. The word here means financially poor. To the point of complete poverty, completely utterly dependent on others by begging to supply their daily needs. That's the word in the Greek. We are going to discover that he is going to take practical terms, and use them in a multitude of different ways not only to to address the physical issues but also the spiritual issues. This is why of course Jesus was a master in what he did. He was God, so it doesn't surprise me, but he was a master in what he did. An individual who was poor in that culture with the mindset that they had concerning Deuteronomy 28 and 29 not only was an individual who was completely dependent on others' generosity for their daily well-being, but also they had in the back of their mind that in some way, at some time, somehow they had offended God. They offended Him to the point that now they're suffering the consequences of their action. In fact, when individuals came to be healed by uh, by Jesus and others brought, often the question was asked of the individual who was crippled. Who sinned, them or one prior to them? And Jesus, of course, often would answer both questions. But the one who was poor not only realized their destitute position, but they also had felt that they were estranged from God that they had done something to offend him and reap the consequences that they are now reaping. Can you imagine going through life in that position, thinking that something has happened that has distanced you from God, but you may not know what it is? Oh, Lord, what have I done to reap such consequences? Maybe desiring to repent, but not knowing to, what to repent of. Not understanding that they are already uh, dealing with a faulty conclusion or concept with the application of 28 and 29 to the individual rather than to the nation. And Jesus says to them, happy are the poor. What? Blessed are the poor. What? For theirs is the kingdom of of God, What? It's available to me? One of the real, real aspects of being poor is that you know that you are poor. One of the real aspects of being in this type of state of poverty is that you know that you're dependent on other people. That dependency, that realization undoubtedly Was soothed by these words, knowing that what they could not provide for themselves would be provided through Jesus. It is not blessed to be poor just to be poor. There are many who feel that minimalism is more godly than a plethora of materialism. Materialism or a minimalistic lifestyle is irrelevant, it's the attitude of the heart towards either that is the problem. As a result then we become, we're the issue of concern not if we have a lot of material or very few material. It's not wrong to be rich. It's not right to be poor. The problem is is that what, where I should say is our heart in the equation. As Jesus looked at this individual or these individuals, and realized their destitute position. He is now stating openly that them being poor has not excluded them from the kingdom of God at all. In fact, theirs is the kingdom of God because they know that they're in need. He then goes on, and I'm going to come back to this in just a moment to show you the second parallel. Verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be satisfied. And blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. Have you ever been hungry? Now I'm not talking about the the false hungers that we have here in America. Let me talk about that false hunger for a moment. Say you're leaving church and you had a beautiful you know, fellowship and refreshments and wonderful food after church, you're satisfied. And as you're driving home, you go by Portillo's. Then you go by Chipotle. Then you go by Lou And you're hungry again. I Look, at, stop it. It's, I'm glad to know I have the gift of exhortation. What'd you get from the message? I'm hungry, yeah. You know, great, wonderful. Uh, you know, a hunger created by the, t- the temptations around us. He's talking about real hunger here. And that hunger that the individual would have would realize that their life hangs in the balance unless that hunger is satisfied. It's a driving motivation behind them. And he said, a person in that state shall be satisfied. A person who is longing and looking for shall be satisfied. And then he goes on for one who weeps and mourns. For you shall laugh. Jesus is saying here that one who understands the brokenness of their own heart, one who understands that they see that they are in a place of sorrow, for, because of circumstances or because of their heart, they will be satisfied by the Lord and their weeping shall be turned into joy. Before I became a Christian, all I can remember is always being angry as a person. I was angry all the time. I was angry at everything and everyone constantly. But after becoming a Christian, The joy, the peace, and God actually gave me a sense of humor. I actually wasn't funny before I was a Christian, and yet God gave me a sense of humor. He changed everything about me. Jesus is speaking of people who see themselves in a position of need in each and every case, the poor the weeping, the hungry. Individuals that would have been excluded in that culture thinking that they're distant from God and had sinned in some way that they are now uh, outside of the realms of possibility of forgiveness and bringing close to God once again. Jesus is saying that in each and every case, these are the people that are going to be satisfied. But then he gives us this last one that gives us the second parallel to all of this teaching. He's using this evangelistically but he's also using this instructionally. He's equipping the people at the exact same time but he's also setting a standard for true discipleship. This is why Jesus was a master teacher. He then goes on and states, "Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn you and your name is evil." On the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, he says, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus is saying this. If you are hated, excluded, spurned, and even called evil because of the situation that I have placed you in as a follower of Jesus Christ, he says, rejoice in it all. Rejoice in it, and you shall see the glorification of Jesus through you. Let me explain. He's talking to those in a mixed multitude, those who were following him already, those who were in a great multitude of people, we don't know where they were, probably distant from God, just simply wanting to see him heal and feed and so forth. He's saying, though, each and every one of you, if you are willing to be poor, then you can be happy and rejoice knowing that yours is the kingdom of God. If you're willing to go hungry for the gospel's sake, then you shall be satisfied. If you're willing to weep over the brokenness of your own heart before God as you come to God as a disciple of God and realize the sin that has separated you from God for so long has now been breached, you can be turned from mourning into laughing. And when you are persecuted for my name's sake, rejoice in it. So were the prophets who came in my name before me and your fathers ridiculed and persecuted. So not only is he playing on the cultural aspects and the concerns and the mindset of the people at that time, but he's also forward uh, projecting what it's going to cost them to be disciples of Jesus Christ. You may be poor. You may be hungry at times. You may be weeping at times, but you are the ones that truly will be happy because you will inherit the kingdom of God. You will be turned from uh, hunger and be satisfied. You shall also be turned from weeping to laughing and you will be able to rejoice knowing that you are truly a follower of me if you come to the point that you are persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ. We often try to avoid any type of persecution as Christians today. We often are so fragile that we desire to be socially acceptable to people rather than sold out to God and living for His glory. Yes, the Bible says we should live peaceably with all men, but not at the expense of righteousness. Not in the position of compromise. If we live our Christian lives properly, the righteousness displayed in our life will be offensive enough to the individual who lives in darkness. If we proclaim the gospel and are rejected for it, understand that Jesus was rejected for that same gospel that he presented. As he was hated, so shall you be. Why it is a surprise to us? And Jesus said very clearly to all of them, if you are willing to be poor and hungry and weep and persecuted for me, blessed are you, happy are you. But there were others in the crowd also. And here Luke gives us four warnings of woe. These were individuals that believed that their circumstances indicated a righteousness before God that truly wasn't there. And he says to them in one of the most stern ways possible, the term woe is more than just a word used to slow down a horse. It is a word that is used specifically in the book of Isaiah, which I think is interesting because that's where this all began. Jesus saying that he came and fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And he says, Woe to them, great warning of distress ahead. That's what it means. Great warning of distress ahead for you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. It is not a sin to be rich. It is a sin to idolize the wealth in which you have and place it before God. In their case their wealth was used as a means of justification saying it apparently doesn't matter how I live as a person God has blessed me in such a way I am wealthy in such a dynamic way that I'm comforted and I therefore can justify my uh, ill action before God, my sin before God, because this wealth obviously determines my righteous standing before God. He says, woe to you. You've received your comfort. This is all that you're going to obtain. The temporal comfort of money. Money is one of the greatest deceptions that there is of course the love of money is the root of all evil money gives a person a false sense of sovereignty and independence from God of course one who is wealthy can often do things that someone who is not wealthy can't do it enables a person it often justifies a person's actions It allows them to get around the system. And Jesus is saying, fine, you feel comfort and justified in your wealth. That's the only comfort and justification you're going to get. Woe to you. Warning, great distress ahead. It is not impossible for a rich person to be saved, but very difficult, as Jesus said. Because in that culture, a person who was rich felt that they were right on with God and had no need of a savior. So if you don't think that you're going to need a savior, you're not going to be looking for one desiring one or seeking one, right? It's like one of those phone calls you get at 9 o'clock at night that says unavailable on your caller ID. I can't tell you how many times I have been called at 9 o'clock at night asking me if I want to buy aluminum siding. And I'm like, uh, no, I live in a condo building. Now, if you can put a pool in with a slide from my balcony, I might be interested. But them trying to sell me something that I have absolutely no need of and I would never seek out for myself is, is foolish, isn't it? Wealth often blinds a person's needs to Jesus Christ. Wealth often gives us a sense of sovereignty, that we are independent from God, that we are apart from God. God says, no, you're going to gain your consolation here and now in this temporal position and lose everything. What is it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And then he says, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. The prophet Amos, love him. If I could find an Amos t-shirt, I would. He was a farmer, a simple farmer there in Israel, and he got so fed up with the rich and their haughtiness and their pride and their lack of concern for the poor, which God made extremely important, even in the Mosaic covenant, that we should look for the poor and the needy and look to help them and so forth. And they were completely indifferent, the wealthy of his society, and he rebuked them openly for it. The term here, For those who are full, meaning completely satisfied with the things of this world. One who is in no need of God and therefore is indifferent to Him once again. This is all that you're going to have. This is going to be the greatest time of your life now because it won't be after you die. See, for us as believers in Jesus Christ, this is the worst it's ever going to be. It's only going to get better. But for one who is apart from Jesus Christ, this is the best it's ever going to be. And Jesus is affirming that here. Though you are full now, you will be hungry, you will be longing. And an eternity spent apart from me. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Some scholars have tried to speculate that the religious leaders were listening to this teaching It is very possible, but we don't have that confirmed by Scripture that they were present. Were they part of the great multitude? I don't know. But many of these certainly would apply to them. But they would certainly reply to those also who were living in a lavish lifestyle, but their hearts were indifferent to God. For you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep, and woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The word "to" there, uh, someone mislaying uh, of the false prophets, I think, could be better uh, better translated there from the Greek uh, uh, preface that's there. Uh, meaning that they spoke, these individuals who were in this state sp- spoke very well of the false prophets that were amongst them. Completely unable to discern the falsehood of the message that the false prophets had came to bring. Today we live in a country where poverty and hunger and weeping and over oneself is really kept in the corners of our culture and we only want to acknowledge them at certain times but they have a realization that more people need to have and that is a need for god that they are completely incapable of supplying for themselves what is needed for righteousness for salvation that they're hungering after something and to be satisfied. And I know that you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, I probably can speak for most of you, that when I watch the news and I hear the events developing around us and the injustice that's continuously taking place, I long for eternity. I long for the new heavens and the new earth, a place where sin and death has not touched or scarred the society in any way, shape, or form. I weep. As a Christian I do weep. I weep when I think that 67 million children have been slaughtered by abortion. I weep to consider the injustice that's taking place in sex trafficking around the world. And even here in the United States of America, let us be aware of that. I weep when I consider the sin that I don't know of that God sees openly and plainly for I am disturbed simply by that which I do know I can't, abl- I can't believe being God seeing everything that he sees and yet is long suffering in hopes that none shall perish but all come to repentance. I don't understand God sometimes but I'm so thankful that he waited for me and so I will therefore proclaim the gospel because I know he's waiting for others also. To the culture at that time, this was revolutionary. He was challenging the whole mindset of the complete Jewish nation and the demographics that have been carved out within it. He's turned everything upside down. Now it's the rich who need to watch out. It's those who are satisfied with the things of this world that need to watch out. It's those who are laughing and rejoicing at this moment in places of prestige and prominence and so forth. And it's the poor who seem to be now in that prime position to receive and to enter into the kingdom of God. And I believe that this thought and this mindset is validated throughout the Gospels as he teaches the Jewish people over and over and over again. Has something blinded you to your reality and your need for God? Have you put something in the way? As a believer in Jesus Christ, are you willing to allow that following of Christ to lead you to a place of poverty, to lead you to a place where you're hungry, to lead you to a place where you are weeping? Are you willing to stand up in the face of verbal and possibly one day physical persecution for the name of Jesus Christ? Have you counted the cost of discipleship? Or do you see Christianity this morning as something that is simply a supplement to my life? I love the idea of Christianity, they say. As long as I can remain in the center of my life and Christianity revolves around me, I'm fine with that. But the moment that you take yourself out of the throne of your heart and place Christ there is the moment that sacrifice is needed to follow him. For Jesus says that if anyone comes to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after him. Yes, God will ask you to sacrifice here on this earth. But yours is the kingdom of God. Yes, God will ask you to sacrifice here on this earth, but you will be satisfied. God will ask you to sacrifice on this earth, but you will be joyful. And God will ask you to sacrifice for his name's sakes, but you can rejoice knowing that you glorified him by standing in the wake of persecution. As we continue on next time in Luke chapter 6, he now will go to expound on these ideas even further. And now that he's given us the structure and the body, he'll begin to flesh it out in the verses that follow. But let me remind you that Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 is truly being fulfilled in everything that Jesus is doing here at this time. I'd like to read it to you if I may. Isaiah 61, 1-3 The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, he, he says, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to open the prison to whom they are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. That's what Jesus is doing here and now.